Before there was, let's see, I guess if you're over 50, maybe 45, before there was ESPN, there was something called ABC Wide World of Sports. And they had a famous every week opening of a montage of sports events and things. And the announcer said, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of... And that poor guy every week would get in that ski wreck and his body would just be crashing and it was some ski event and he'd be flipping and flying all over the place. The agony of defeat. Most people in the Bible, if you think about it, experience outside of Jesus were people who experienced failure and defeat. I, I can't think of any, anyone that at some level, at some place, did not experience failure and defeat before they knew the Lord, but also even after they knew the Lord. And uh, if you've never failed the Lord, uh, you might want to just check out now and... Uh, not waste your time this morning, because this is a message that is for those of us who have failed the Lord, those of us who have faced defeat in personal areas in our life as believers. It wasn't maybe our intent, but yet we experience failure and defeat. And so the title this morning, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John, is When You Fail the Lord. When you fail the Lord in the Gospel of John, and we're going to primarily look at a portion of this, but look at, uh, not necessarily just kind of skim a little bit of the whole chapter, but as we continue in this series of the Gospel of John, John weaves together the story of Peter, the Apostle Peter's failure, his denial of Christ, in with the account in chapter 18 of Jesus's arrest and trial and you can follow along in your bulletin there's a listener's guide there the little blue handout uh, you can be a much more engaged listener you get your money's worth out of taking the time to come today and listen to the word of the Lord and follow along that's what it's intended for you to do and so this morning just to give a little before we get into the heart of the message let me just kind of sketch just a very brief kind of put it in a historical context kind of give you flavor of chapter 18 and what's going on there. To understand the account of Jesus' trials, his trials, uh, just a little history in the background of what's happening in John chapter 18. Uh, there were actually two trials, one before the Jewish religious authorities and the other before the Roman civil authorities, okay? So you had kind of this back and forth going on. Uh, the Jewish trial uh, began with an initial arrangement with the uh, retired high, or high priest Annas uh, who tried unsuccessfully to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He was kind of the retired high priest. And so Jesus was brought before Annas uh, to uh, basically authenticate that he was a blasphemer. Uh, and then Jesus was sent to Caiaphas who was the high priest at the time of Jesus. He was the 
high priest and who illegally he sought to bring false witnesses to come against Jesus and to testify against him. And other gospel writers, uh, as you compare those things, kind of put that together. And in, in desperation, Caiaphas uh, intervened and got Jesus to state openly. Uh, Matthew helps us with this, but we don't have it on the screen. But he got Jesus to admit that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and uh, thus declared him guilty of blasphemy. And then early in the morning, uh, Jesus stood before the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of the two main religious bodies, Jewish bodies of Pharisees and Sadducees. They operated kind of what we might would call in our understanding of a supreme court in that uh, Jewish, in that time frame. Again, remember Israel is under the uh, domination of Rome, but yet they were able to operate their own laws to some extent as long as they weren't in conflict. And so early in the morning, he stood under the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin formally, as the Jewish body, condemned him to death. Now, there's only one problem. Since the Jews uh, were under the domination of Rome, they could not, among themselves, carry out capital punishment. So they had to do what? They had to get somebody else, and the somebody else is, they had to bring him before the Roman court, okay? So they had to bring him before the Roman court, the Roman authorities. They had the authority to convict him and put Jesus to death. But the recommendation of the so-called Jewish authorities was to condemn him to death. So they sent him on to Pilate. And you see this, uh, and again, it's not on the screen, but later in chapter 18, verse 28 on, You'll see that uh, taking place there. When Pilate heard, Pilate was the kind of the Roman official governor to some degree uh, uh, that was under, he was Roman, and he was there on the authority of Rome. And so when he heard uh, uh, Jesus' uh, uh, testimony that Jesus was a Galilean, uh, Pilate kicked the can up the road even more. He sent the trial and the whole thing on to Herod. He didn't want anything to do with it. Herod was a quote-unquote king, but he was more of a puppet king who was ceremonial and only could operate under the good graces of Rome. He really didn't have any authority, but among the Jewish people, he had some level of authority, but only as much as Rome would give it to him. And he was the tet, what's called the Tetrarch over Galilee. He was the authority. And so Pilate basically said, I'm not fooling with this. And he said, this is y'all's problem. So he kicked it up to Herod to deal with it. And remember in, again, other gospel writers, in fact, in verse 38, um, uh, as, as Herod uh, listened to him, but Herod did what? Herod kicked it back down to Pilate. Nobody wanted to deal with this. Nobody wanted to handle this. Kind of sounds like some of the stuff going on today. And I'm not comparing anybody to Jesus. Don't go there. That's crazy talk. All right? But it's just our legal system. Nobody wants to take responsibility. Everybody just kind of kicks it off to somebody else. So Herod was like, I'm not doing it. So he kicked it back up to Pilate. In verse 38, Pilate said, look, I find no fault with him. I find no fault with him. But later we see in chapter 19... Verse 16 of John, that Pilate, because he was doing something politically expedient, the Jews wanted this before their Passover. Remember, 
uh, the tradition was they would get somebody and they traded Jesus for, for a guy named Barabbas who was a convicted thief and murderer. Uh, and so uh, Pilate said in chapter 19, verse 16 of John, that he delivered Jesus back to the Jewish authorities to be crucified. That's all what's going on there. John just gives us a little snippet of the events, but when you compare them to Matthew and Luke, they fill in a lot of the other details, and that's helpful. So with that all going on, let's kind of go back and look at chapter 18 and the events surrounding where we see the apostle Peter in the events of chapter 18, and uh, I want to uh, read a portion of John chapter 18, and that will be on the screen. And so if you'd look with me in your Bibles of John 18, it'll be on the screen here, just to kind of set the context a little bit. And so in verses 1 and 2, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, you remember what Judas was doing. He was to lead the authorities that he had kind of made a deal with to arrest Jesus. Keep going. Therefore, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, knowing all things, check your phones, all right, make sure they're turned off. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, that gives you insight into the uh, omniscience of Jesus. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, nothing happened by surprise, went forward when they came to arrest them and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, I am he, and Judas who betrayed him. You notice John the Apostle, make sure he gets that in. He wants you to make sure. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood not with him, but with them. Next verse. Now when he said to them, I am he, look at this. They drew back, and look at what happened. They fell to the ground. The power of Jesus in that moment. And the power of Jesus that it could have called... 10,000 angels to his rescue, they sense, when he said, I am he, I am, the I am, the I am that you sang about, the tetragrammatron the, in the Hebrew, the I am that speaks of the name of God. When Moses wanted to know, God, what, who shall I tell him your name is? He said, I am, I am. And so in that moment, the I am spoke and what? The power was so powerful and what Jesus said, what happened to them? They stepped back and tripped and fell down because of the power of who they were coming to arrest. Next verse. And then Simon Peter, who had a conceal and carry permit, having a sword. I'm kidding. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, kind of his guard, his name was Malchus, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? The cup that he prayed in the garden. Father, may this cup pass, but not my will, but what? 
but thine be done. May, and he said, shall I not drink the cup, notice this, which my father, not the Jews, not the Romans, not the criminals, which my father has given me. Is that the last verse I have up there? And so the title this morning, I meant to mark those because I didn't want to read the whole chapter. The title this morning of the message is When We Fail the Lord. And I want you to notice, first of all, that when we fail the Lord, like Peter, and listen, if Peter, who was the, you could say, chief apostle, he wasn't the pope, but he was the chief apostle, the main spokesperson, if he could again, succumb to failure before the Lord. And I would even note that you find this before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, before Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. You find a dramatic change. But nevertheless, Peter exhibited failures that I think we can learn from and grow from. Erwin Lutzer, who some of you uh, know that name from Moody uh, Radio, uh, writes in one of his books on failure, quote, C.S. Lewis who uh, in the screw tape letters, you know, the, the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis is really about spiritual warfare. And C.S. Lewis describes Satan's strategy and says that when uh, Satan gets Christians to become preoccupied with their defeats and their failures, it's at that point that he's already won the battle when he gets them to be preoccupied with where they failed God. And I know for myself, we can become very preoccupied at where we have failed, where we have let God down, if you will. But again, we want to see God's grace and God's mercy. But we can read this and understand this. But I want you to notice, first of all, the failure of Peter. The failure of Peter. And number one, the failure of Peter. There's four, trace, four steps that we can trace this failure. And number one is we fail to understand God's ways which are not our ways. There's four steps we're going to look at this morning. And the first is, the first step towards our own failure before the Lord is when we fail to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. All right, you with me? When we fail to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. Peter, like many of the disciples of his day, could not wrap his mind around the idea that the Messiah that was to come was going to be crucified and killed. Peter was no different than any others of his day because it was so baked in to their culture that the Messiah that they believed that was to come would be a Messiah that would come and reestablish the glory and the authority of King David. He was not going to come and lay his life down. Just the opposite was their understanding of the Jews of his day. The Messiah that they had an understanding that they had conceived was going to come was going to come in a blaze of glory and overthrow the pagan Romans and, and clean the temple of all the hypocrites and reestablish the great glory of Israel and the throne of David. In fact, you remember in Matthew 16 when the Apostle Peter answered the question correctly, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And he said, well, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, back and forth. But Peter said, thou, I always think of it in the King James, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, 
Christ, Christos, is Greek for the Hebrew of Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And it wasn't long right after that that Jesus in Matthew 16 began to explain how he must go to the cross, how he must be crucified and died. And you know what Peter did? He went from the head of the class to the back of the class. Because G Peter, feeling a little, a little good about himself, took Jesus aside and Peter rebuked Jesus and said, not going to happen. Not on my watch. I will not let this happen. And Jesus, you know what he said to him? He didn't say, well, Peter, you, have you read the theology books and this? No, he said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty traumatized if the Son of God referred to me as Satan. What is he saying? Was he saying that Peter was the embodiment of the devil? No, he was saying that Peter, you're not understanding God's ways. He said in that Matthew 16, 23, he said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you, Peter, are not setting your mind on God's interests, on the things of God, but the things of men. And oftentimes, that's what happens to us is we fail to understand God's ways. And what happens is because we are not walking and understanding God's ways, we oftentimes fail and stumble because we are more consumed about our understanding, how it should be, how I would do it. This is what I think should be happening. This is what I surmise instead of, instead of understanding, God, what is your will? What is your purpose? What is your ways? We fail because we fail to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. And herein, I don't know if Peter, again, later when Jesus was arrested, uh, there was confusion, there was hurt. I mean, he walked away, he and his brother walked away from their businesses. And, and even though they, they heard Jesus' words, there seemed to be a lack of understanding. You know, you can have the right information and the right data, but you lack understanding. That's why just filling your head with a bunch of theology and knowledge is limited. Because if you don't have wisdom and understanding to go alongside of that, you're just filling your head with a bunch of facts. And you need the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into what the Holy Spirit does so well. And what his job description is, is to lead you into truth, all truth. And so disappointment, maybe again, uh, you're here this morning and you've got disappointment. You have a sense of failure. And maybe things haven't happened at this point in your life. This is not what I signed up for, God. You know, this is not the picture that I wanted, the expectation of maybe my career choices or my spouse choices. We won't, don't look around. Nobody will, no, don't say a word. Um, financial expectations, whatever it is, there's disappointment. And with that disappointment, there's a sense of failing God. And maybe you've prayed something for something fervently and, 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 and it has not happened the way that you feel like it should happen. Here's the problem with that, or the danger is look out because you're setting yourself up for not only the disappointment, but confusion and the hurt that can succumb to the temptation to go off and freelance on your own and, and, and be disappointed with God and to just, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to become an atheist. You're not going to do this. But you're just going to say, God, I can't depend on you. 
I'm disappointed in you. And you go through your life with this sense of, of, of disappointment and a sense of failure that God has let you down. You know, when I think about that, I think about the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. And Joseph, you remember Joseph was given that coat of many colors by his father Jacob. And, uh, you know, there's some, you know, play upon favoritism that probably wasn't wise on Jacob's part. Certainly we understand that. But if you know about Joseph's life and you know that all that he went through, sold into slavery by his brothers and, and made false accusations and put in prison on false charges and people that said they would help him didn't help him and all through that and then God providentially uh, led him into where he eventually would become the second in command over the entire nation of Egypt. Joseph has Jewish blood in him, but he's the second in command over all of Egypt. And at the moment that after Jacob died and his brothers who had sold him into slavery, they thought at this time Joseph, Joseph is going to show retribution and revenge. Do you remember what Joseph said in Genesis 50 Verse 19 and 20, Joseph said to them, to his brothers, he said, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? That's a rhetorical question. Look at where I am. Why did these brothers, why did jo Jacob send the, the, the other sons into Egypt? It's because they were starving to death. They had no food. And Joseph, because of the anointing of God upon his life, is sitting upon a prosperous nation that has an abundance of food, that in order for them to survive, guess what? That messianic seed is going to survive. So when he says, am I not in the place of God, verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me. He didn't let them off the hook. They didn't somehow think, hey, let's sell them into slavery and we'll advance the purposes of God. No, they, they were just rotten people, rotten brothers. But as for you, you intended, your motive was evil. But guess what? God is bigger than the bad. But God, but God, I'd circle but God in my Bible, and those of you who don't have a Bible or on your tablets, take your finger and mark it or do something. But I tell you, but God, that's a great, that's a great two words, but God meant it for good. God is not hindered by the evil and the failures that people have put upon you or the failures and disappointments that you have committed. God in no way, his purpose and plan for your life is not hindered in the ultimate purpose that he has, that God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day so that many people are alive. Peter Peter had failure. And we, when we fail to see and understand God's purposes and understand God's ways and we lean on our understanding, Isaiah 55, 9 is a great reminder. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, the Lord says, higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The second step that led to Peter's failure which is often involved in our own spiritual failure, secondly, is we fail to recognize our own weakness so that we trust in ourselves and not in the Lord. We fail. We fail 
because we fail to recognize our own weakness so that we trust in ourselves and not in the Lord. We have to kind of do a uh, call in Mr. Luke to help us with this. Luke 22, verse 31. You remember this dialogue in Luke 22? And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Peter, Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, even right there, Jesus kind of, when he says, when you've returned, meaning there's going to be a string. I don't think Peter totally understood it, because if he did, he wouldn't have said something dumb, what he said in verse 33. After Jesus just said, Satan has asked for you, but I've stepped in, and I told him to get your, his hands off of you. He's not allowed to have you. Then Peter, feeling a little, little big, said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You see, Peter didn't know what he didn't know. He didn't know often what we don't know. We don't recognize our own weakness, and we lean in to our own understanding. And he says, Lord, I'll go with you to the death. And we know that's not the case. Matthew 26, 33 says, Peter told Jesus, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. That's what Peter said. And I listen, I, I think he believed it. I don't think he was, I, I think he really believed it. But the problem was, is that he didn't understand his own weakness. And he was trusting in himself. He was trusting in his own commitment and devotion like we often do. And, that, and the Bible says that pride, pride goes before the fall. Remember Proverbs 14, 18? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty or arrogant spirit before a fall. When we start thinking that, oh, that will never happen. Listen, the Lord has many times rebuked me when I was when I would read something or learn something of maybe a minister who's committed sin or did this, that, and the other, and there's something inside my prideful spirit that's like, oh, that would never happen to me. And the Holy Spirit sometimes has spoken and said, yeah, that may never happen to you. You might have done worse. Hello? Because we are naive and underestimate our own weakness. And we underestimate the power of the Spirit of God that lives in us. You see, the Bible says, Paul said, and I don't know if it's on the screen, 2 Corinthians 12.10, he said, I take pleasure in my weaknesses. He said, because when I am weak, when I am not leaning into my own self, that's when I'm strong. Why? Because I'm dependent upon the power of God's Spirit. And so it was probably Peter's lack of awareness of his own weakness when we see back in John 18, verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We don't know who that is. Many assume it's John. Now that disciple, meaning the one that was with Peter, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. 
And then the other disciple, maybe John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Peter didn't have the connection, but the other disciple had a connection. The other disciple says, I know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody, and we can get you in. I used to say when we'd visit Florida, there'd be people like that who had some connection to Disney tickets. But then, and we kind of joke about this, and then when they start to describe their connection, it's kind of like, well, I know a guy who knows a guy, and he gets off of Disney at 7 a.m., so you've got to meet him at 7 a.m., and then you've got to meet him behind the souvenir shop, and he's... And it's like when they're going to put you in a van and dress you up like Mickey and get... I mean, it's this convoluted, and you realize they don't have the connection. Well, I don't know if it's that quite, but, but Peter was able to get in because the other disciple had some connection or relationship. And it's in verse 17 that as soon as Peter walked through the entrance, a young slave girl, maybe a teenager who kept the door, verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? I mean, Peter thought he could kind of go in incognito. And he said, I am not. You see what happened to Peter? He was completely caught off guard. The same man that said, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll go to prison. I'll lay my life down. I will never deny you. And a little teenage girl says, hey, hey, aren't you one of his followers? Peter said, nope, never knew him. I'm not one of them. Completely caught off guard. And then the next verse says, now the servants and officers who made a fire of coals. The servants and officers, they are kind of just the employees that were, or they're on the payroll of the high priest, and they have, you know, they're just, they're just the, they're the working crew. And what are they doing? The servants and officers, they're, they're standing around a fire, fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them. Boy, don't let that go away. Peter stood with them and he warmed himself. He's warming himself by the fire. He's just kind of hanging out with the employees. He's kind of just making small talks. Small talk with these employees that are working on the payroll. But here's the thing. The greatest, most eventful moment in human history is happening literally within feet of them. And there seems to be total indifference, and they have no clue of what's going on. They're just warming their hands, trying to get ready for work for the next day. And Peter's standing with them, and their indifference to the most spiritually powerful event in human history, they warm themselves by the fire. And that indifference became a subtle danger that Peter didn't detect. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, John 18, 25. And as he's standing by the fire, kind of warming his hands among with the, the kitchen crew and the custodians and the other workers that are standing there, they said to him, second time he denied, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? 
And Peter denied it and said, I am not. What's he doing? He's sitting shooting the breeze with a bunch of indifferent people around the fire. They don't care what's going on. They're indifferent. They have no, they have no skin in the game about Jesus. Just another day. And you know what that reminds me of is the danger of when we fall in the trap of hanging around people that have no spiritual interest in anything. We just, we just hang out. We just kind of hang out. And that indifference and that, that influence creeps into our life that before we know it, their lack of spiritual interest, their lack of any, anything of godliness or walking with Christ or any of those things, that, that doesn't mean anything to them. And what do we do? We're just sitting there. We're just content, just kind of, you know, making small talk and hanging out. And the danger is, is that, and I'll say this term and I'll explain it, we have to be careful about hanging out and letting worldly mindset people influence our lives. Well, pastor, aren't we supposed to reach those that don't know Jesus? Aren't we supposed to reach those that are closest to us? Yes, but let the Holy Spirit also make sure He's doing that too. Because most people that say, oh, I don't want to cut off these friends. They're not living for God. They have no interest. And we get together and we hang out and maybe what we, we just kind of hang out and talk about the same stuff we've talked about for years. But guess what? They have no interest in godly values. And whether you think it's true or not, all of that will creep back into your life. And guess what? It, it, it lulls you into a complacency. It lulls you into an indifference because you're just content to stand around and subtly what they think, their opinions, well, you know, I, I tell you, I don't agree with that church. I don't agree with their rules. This is what we do. And, it, and all of a sudden, those influences begin to creep in. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And you know it's true. And people that say, well, I'm just trying to reach my lost friends. Let me tell you something. How often does that work out? I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not saying cut off people. But I'm saying this. Be careful. Be careful who you're standing around the fire shooting the breeze with. Because whether you realize it or not, they're influencing your life. Peter was in a great spiritual moment. And because he was shooting the breeze by the fire, he was caught off guard when they said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? Easy to get caught up in the small talk of unbelievers and get drawn in. And before we know it, those influences define our way of thinking. The third step that led to Peter's failure is thirdly, we fail to recognize the spiritual battle the spiritual battle that we're engaged in, and so fail to pray as we should. We fail to recognize the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. When we fail, when we fail the Lord, we fail to recognize the spiritual battle that we're engaged in, and so we fail to pray as we should. You see, Peter didn't grasp and understand. I mean, what Jesus said to him, Satan has requested you by name, brother. 
He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to, he wants to take you out. Peter didn't quite grasp that. Remember back in, uh, when Jesus said that in Luke twenty two thirty one, that he may sift you as wheat? In Luke twenty two forty six, Jesus, as he was approaching his final hour, said to them, his disciples, why do you sleep? He told his disciples to rise and do what? Pray. Rise and pray, lest you enter into what? You see, we fail to recognize the spiritual battle that we're engaged in and God has allowed us and given us a privilege of prayer to help us to understand that. And see, the reason this is a spiritual battle is in that same chapter of Luke 22, in verse 53, Jesus, as he was conversing to those that had arrested him, said... When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not seize me. You did not try to seize me. But notice what he says. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. What is the power of darkness referring to? It is the power of darkness referring to Satan and his demons that are behind and carrying out this arrest of Jesus. You with me? You see, the spiritual battle is for spiritual people and as we have been born again we have been born again and had a renewed spirit that has been born again made alive look in your bibles real quick over to first corinthians 2 first corinthians 2 it won't be on the screen so you'll have to break apart the pages there in your bible or on your tablet or whatever it is but go to first corinthians 2 and i want you to see something here of what it means to be a spiritual person. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 6. Verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about spiritual battle. But the only way you're involved as a, in a spiritual battle is you've got to be a spiritually minded person. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. See, there's a wisdom of this age. Nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We speak Wisdom that is of the mature, of, of, of spiritual things. Verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew anything about. For had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us. How? Through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. That's why you need to be 
born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, to tap in and understand the things of God. Now we have received, verse 12, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, verse 14. But the natural man, that means the unborn-again person, the person who is not a believer, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see, the reason why some people, even people that profess to be Christians and members of the church, the reason they act unspiritual is because they are unspiritual. And the reason they're unspiritual is because they're not born from above. They're not born again. Their way of thinking is still carnal. It is still worldly. That's the way that God has transformed us by the Spirit is to make us spiritual people. And when we engage in spiritual, the spiritual life, that we're walking, as Paul said in Galatians, that we're walking in the Spirit we're training our spirit man to hear and receive the things of God. Guess what? There is going to be a battle on that level of spiritual warfare that the Holy Spirit engages us in. And that's why sometimes we're not even aware of the real darkness that is going on behind our families, behind our world, behind our government, behind situations. Why? Because we are not spiritually minded. Listen, and I won't, there's some folks, some Christians that can wax more about Tucker and Don this week than what God's Word said to them this week. Don't be misguided into thinking that your political activity, as righteous as it may be, translates into spiritual understanding. That's a great deception I'm afraid a lot of Christians have fallen into. You see, what, what, did, what did this lack of spiritual-minded thinking result in? Verse 10 and 11 of John 18, Then Simon Peter, he drew a sword. Why? Because that made sense to him. And Jesus said, verse 11, Put your, put your sword away. This is not a physical battle. My, my, you know, he told Pilate, yeah, I am a king, but my kingship is not of this world, meaning its origin is not of this world. It doesn't operate of this world. You see, that's what Paul was trying to get at in Ephesians 6, where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Meaning, 
The enemy is not your boss. It's not your mother-in-law. It's not your neighbor. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? It's a spiritual battle against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul would remind us again in 2 Corinthians 10 from the New International Version. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And we need to keep this in mind as we come into a political season. Because the real fight and battle is a spiritual battle. It doesn't mean we throw our heads in the sand and don't become involved. But make sure your priorities in the right order. There's only one Savior who's going to save America, and his name's Jesus, okay? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, these weapons that we use have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, prayer helps you get an alignment with your, whole, with your spirit. You see, when it's, like, it's like piloting a plane and you have no communication with the tower. You're just flying on your own. When you pray, when you engage in prayer, God's spirit enables you to think rightly, to strategize rightly, will give you insight into situations and understanding to situations that you in the natural may think, well, that makes perfect sense, that I should do this. And the Holy Spirit will warn you. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit warn you not to do something? Yeah, I have. Many times. And many times I ignored it. Guess who was right? We fail to recognize the spiritual battle that we're engaged in, and we fail to pray as we should. And fourth, the fourth step that led to Peter's failure that's often involved in our own spiritual failures is the fear, is we fail to fear God more than we fear people. We fail to fear God more than we fear people. The Bible calls this the fear of man. The fear of man. That was behind Peter's third denial, John 18, 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, that was, remember that, Malchus? This was his cousin Bart. No, I don't know what his name was. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose, Peter, whose ear Peter cut off. And by the way, do you remember Jesus miraculously healed that ear? This guy said, did I not see you in the garden with him, with Jesus? And what did Peter do? He panicked. He panicked. The Bible says that he panicked and he denied Jesus again. Luke rounds it out and helps us with this, this very scenario. You remember Jesus said, and Peter was boasting, Jesus said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
Peter said, no way. That's never going to happen. And Luke 22 tells us exactly of this same event, but Luke helps us round it out. And the Lord, as Peter is standing in that, that courtyard, that apparently he's able to see Jesus being beaten and catches the eye of Jesus. And Luke tells us in Luke 22, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then, Peter, what? Remembered the word of the Lord and how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, we fail. Oftentimes, it's because we fail to fear God more than we fear people. We're more worried about what so-and-so thinks then what does God think? This decision, my choices, the workplace, life, whatever it is, I fear what people will think than really what God thinks. As I said, the Bible calls this the fear of man. And when I talk about fear, I'm not talking, when I talk about the fear of God, I'm talking about the fear that is a respect, an awe, an honor, not a fear that's trauma or terror of somebody who's going to abuse us. The fear of God. In his book, Christian counselor Edward Welch has written a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. He talks about the spiritual ramifications of being consumed with the fear of man. Where we are, we are, just, uh, we are addicted to the praise and the adulation and even what other people think. That we're more concerned about other people's opinions than what God's opinions are. Let me give you a few sampling quotes here that I think will help us. And I mention this book because it may be of helpful to some of you. And he, he goes, it's very biblical and goes into this in a much broader sense. But a couple of things he says. He said, fear in the biblical sense is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of somebody, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled are mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. This is an inordinate affections to people when God should reserve those affections. He says three things. We fear people because they expose us and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, and threaten us. Then he says, these three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is, more powerful and significant than God. And out of that fear, out of the fear that, creates, that is created in us, we give other people, listen to this, we give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. He says, when God and spirituality are reduced to our standards or our feelings, God will never be to us the awesome Holy One of Israel with God reduced in our eyes. A fear of people will thrive. The fear of man is always part of a triad that includes unbelief and disobedience. You remember what Proverbs said? Proverbs 29, 25? 
The fear of man brings a snare. That word in the Hebrew, snare, is a trap. Like a hunter that's out hunting game, it's a trap. The fear of man, the fear of being more concerned about what others think, brings a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I like how the Amplified says it. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever leans on, trusts in, and puts his confidence in the Lord is safe and set on high. Real quick, and I mean real quick, look at these secondly and compare the failure of Peter to the faithfulness of Jesus. I'm going to give these to you real quick. Just compare how all of these failures are the opposite of Jesus. The back side of your handout, right quick. Number one, unlike Peter, Jesus knew the Father's plan and submitted to it even though it was painfully difficult. You see, Peter didn't understand the ways of God. Jesus understood the will and the purpose of God. He came to get to fulfill the word of the Lord. Remember what he said in 1811? He said, shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given to me? He understood the will of God. He understood the ways of God. Secondly, Jesus always depended on the Father. He said that the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. He was so in sync with the will of the Father that he always depended on the Father and he did not lean into his own understanding. Thirdly, Jesus knew the enemy. He knew who his enemy was. And Jesus wrestled in prayer to gain the victory, here it is, before the crisis hit. When do we go into prayer mode? In the middle of the crisis. How about pray before the crisis hits? Jesus prepared. And listen, if Jesus prepared himself in prayer, the Son of God, how much more need I say that we need to be engaged in prayer. Huh? And fourth, Jesus feared God and not man. And as you read on in chapter 18, he bore faithful witness to his Father. In a few weeks, we'll be looking at John 21. And what's interesting, what's interesting about Peter. Remember the scripture we looked at in chapter 18 where it says that he was warming himself around the coals of fire? That in the Greek, in the Greek, there's only one other place that that phrase for charcoal fire that's used in John 18.18 is used. But in John 18.18, that term charcoal fire is only used by John in one other place. And you know where that is? That's in John 21, the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus is on the shoreline and Peter and some of the disciples are in the boat, and the same Greek word, you have Jesus with a charcoal fire is making breakfast. The first charcoal fire, Peter denied Jesus. The second charcoal fire, Peter was restored to Jesus. What's the point? There's always grace. There's always forgiveness. You may have felt that you failed God so bad. Pastor, if you knew, I don't need to know. God knows. And guess what? God made his choice for you before you made your choice for him. Do you realize that? 
For while we were yet sinners, what? The Bible says that Christ Jesus died for us. You remember the woman that was caught by a group of men with another man committing adultery and they hauled her in to Jesus? Remember he wrote on the ground? Remember that whole scene? And he said, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus showed his love first and then said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, now when you go and sin no more, then I'll love you. You notice that? Let's pray and do that. Some of you may need that this morning. I'm not talking about getting saved. That may be true, but it may be some of you that are believers. You've been a believer for a long time, and yet you battle a sense of failure before God. And let this be a reminder, where there's great failure, there's great grace.